Hi, I'm Dr. Pam Peek, and welcome to episode 247 of Her, the podcast where you'll hear the naked truth about her mind, her body, her life, and today, her mindfulness, especially in the era of COVID. Yep, you heard me right. We're going to have a terrific show. Just know that before we begin, that this episode is made possible by our wonderful friends at Smarty Pants Women's Vitamins, the delicious once-a-day gummies that contain all of the essential vitamins, minerals, and omega oils, customized just for women. To learn more, hop on over to smartypantsvitamins.com. Okie dokie. Now here's your first official reminder to click on iTunes after this episode to rate and review the show because, honey, I'm just sitting here waiting for your feedback, twiddling my little thumbs because I love to hear from you. So I'll be reminding you later on, but just remember, click on iTunes when we're all done. Okay, it's time for her. Her. The podcast. The naked truth about women. Her mind. Her body. Her life. It's all about her. Feeling a little anxious, are we out there in COVID land? Do you wake up in the morning and say to yourself, no, this isn't real. I'm living a Stephen King sci-fi thriller. This is, I'm just going to blink my eyes and this whole craziness is going to go away and I'm going to go back to doing what I did before. And then it sinks in. It's like week five of quarantine, shelter in place, wear masks, social distancing. I could go on. You get the total picture here. And guess what happens? Mounting anxiety and angst. And especially if you're a woman in the Herb podcast land, you know us, generalized anxiety syndrome, are us. That's what we do. Sometimes it's a second career, being anxious. So what better to do than to learn a way to be able to cope with this, to show resilience? Well, I have with us today an expert in that field, Dr. Judson Brewer, ah, the author of The Craving Mind. Now, he's a thought leader in the field of habit change and the science of self-mastery. Oh, man, sign me up for that one. Having combined over 20 years of experience with mindfulness training with his scientific research. He's Director of Research and Innovation at the Mindfulness Center and Associate Professor in Behavioral and Social Sciences and Psychiatry at the Schools of Public Health and Medicine at Brown University. Oh boy. And, you know, I've been reading his wonderful work for quite some period of time. And then I hopped and skipped right into a fabulous article he just wrote for the New York Times, and it was all about a brain hack, yeah, man, to break the coronavirus anxiety cycle. So guess who I have on? Yeah, it's Dr. Brewer. Why? Because you need to hear this. What is this brain hack? We're desperate. We're anxious. (laughs) Dr. Brewer, (laughs) welcome to the Herb Podcast. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Oh my goodness, enter anxiety as you wrote, you know, in this beautiful piece uh, for uh, the New York Times. I think it 
it was like in mid-March. Um, I love that too, where to enter anxiety, you know, it's a feeling of worry, nervousness, or unease. Well, why wouldn't we fee- be feeling su- such anxiety and angst? Good Lord, we've got the virus. Help us start, you know, kind of navigating this, if you will. Yeah, you know, and I don't know about you, but I never learned about anxiety as a habit, as a potential habit. Uh, In medical school, I never learned about it in residency uh, when I was having my own panic attacks. (laughs) I know, really, seriously. (laughs) And it it was only after years of, I'd been studying addictions and working in an addiction psychiatry clinic that it started to occur to me as I was seeing patient over patient, patient after patient who was um, starting, they would start to drink because they were anxious. They would procrastinate because they were anxious. They would overeat because they were anxious. And, you know, the, I I don't know about you, but the the SSRIs and the other antidepressant medications just weren't doing it for my patients. Uh, And, you know, I, I realized that something that I'd been studying, which was habit change, really lined up here. And that connection was probably one of the single biggest aha moments in my, you know, several decades of research. And this, you know, basically uh, our, our brain learns as a way to survive. You know, if we step out into the street uh, and we almost get hit by a car, we step back and then that fear response says, you know, hey, hey, dummy, <laughs> you know, why didn't you look both ways? Duh. And when we, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So when we learn, oh, I almost got killed, we can actually uh, avoid that in the future. And so this learning system is actually relatively straightforward. It has three essential elements, a trigger, a behavior, and a, a reward or result from a brain perspective. Uh, somebody wants to learn about the habit piece. I gave a TED talk on this a couple of years ago. Um, but basically, you know, if we see food, let's let's think of the survival habit loop around nutrient and avoiding danger. If we see food, that's the trigger. We eat the food, that's the behavior. And then our stomach sends this dopamine signal to our brain that says, remember what you ate and where you found it. That's the reward. Same is true for survival. You know, you, you walk up to the street, uh, which is the trigger. You look both ways, that's the behavior. And then the reward is you, you know, you survive. So... This has this is our survival brain. Yet on top of this, sometime in the last, I don't know, million years, we evolved this neocortex, literally new brain, which is involved in survival in a different way, which is around thinking and planning. So, you know, we can think into the future and that helps us plan. And that's a great survival tool in modern day where we're not, you know, we're not worrying about, you know, am I going to get eaten by a saber-toothed tiger, whatever, today. But this new new brain, the prefrontal cortex in particular, needs accurate information in order to make accurate predictions for the future. And I actually put a short YouTube video out on this, like an animation that kind of walks everybody through this process. But basically, as we, um, you know, as we don't have accurate information, as there as uncertainty abounds our thinking brain is still going on high, you know, running at full speed, but it's just filling in garbage. It's saying, what if this, what if that, what if this, what if that? When we don't know, know, we don't have accurate information. We don't know how long it's going to be until the economy opens back up as an example. So when we, when you pair this survival brain fear, which is a survival 
you know, really helps us survive. When you pair it with uncertainty, we actually get anxiety. Does that make sense? Oh my God. It makes all the sense in the world. And now you got everyone out there anxious. No, because <laughs> they're sitting there saying, wait a minute, what did you say about um, overeating under anxiety? So here you are, you know, sheltered in place. I mean, that just sounds so draconian somehow. I don't know. Um, so here we are, you know, Netflixing our brains out. And as you've read, and I certainly have, because I wrote a book on food addiction, which became the Consumer Bible on food addiction, which is called The Hunger mm -hmm. Fix. And I've worked mm -hmm. in addiction uh, for years as well, so I totally get it. We're, we're totally aligned here. So here they are out there, and what we've read is that all of the uh, big food makers of uh, the comfort foods are seeing a major resurgence in the purchase of you know nasty boy things, um, you know all the chips and the and the and the uh, the cookies and the pastries and the middle name for all of this is really processed foods, uh, and so suddenly people are sitting there Netflixing their brains out um, until God knows what time, eating, not moving very much, and I see a you know. A recipe for disaster. Uh, as well, alcohol consumption is up. Um, one mm -hmm. can only imagine that the use of drugs um, and anything like that, including, I mean, drugs, both prescription and otherwise, is also up to uh, anesthetize people from the pain of all of this. Uh, so this is a real problem here. I mean, this is a big yes. problem, right? I mean, a very <laughs> serious problem. You know. It is. It is. And I've seen this not only in my clinic, like drinking, for example, I have tons of patients who come in who've been referred to me for alcoholism, but really anxiety is their underlying issue. And if, if we can treat that underlying anxiety, I've had people where it's been very easy for them to quit drinking because it's no longer driven by that, you know, that anxiety being the trigger and then that alcohol being the way to distract themselves from that unpleasant emotion. Uh, and my labs actually studied this, you know, uh, so getting at solutions, <laughs> you know. Ooh, wait a minute, say, hey. solution? <laughs> Did you say that there's a solution? Well, now you said, <laughs> now let's let's go to that beautiful, you know, way that you framed it in your New York Times mm -hmm. piece. It's the brain mm -hmm. hack. So to hack our brains and break the anxiety cycle, we need to become aware of two things. Go for it. Yes, yes. So, and broadly speaking, we need to understand how our minds work. If we don't know how our minds work, we can't work with them. And so that's the first step is we need to realize that it is anxiety that's driving these things, whether it's stress eating or Netflixing or, you know, buying all the toilet paper at the grocery store, um, which actually that, that is contributed to by, um, by people panicking and then seeing other people panic and then their prefrontal cortex is completely offline. So understanding the process and seeing the process at play is the first step. The second step is actually hacking the system where we can, uh, what I get to what I call the big, the BBO, the bigger, better offer. And the way that works is that our brains are set up to make relative decisions. They're going to pick A versus B. So, for example, you know, let's let's use your food example: um, broccoli versus highly processed chocolate cake, right? Go for so the cake. A, Don't be a fool. <laughs> exactly. Go for the cake. Yeah. 
And our brain says, well, calories, you know, there's more calories in that than the broccoli. So I'm just going to, I'm going to do this. And we can actually set up habits around eating from when we're very young, you know, like think of all the birthday parties that we associate eating cake with eating ice cream and getting presents and having fun with our friends. So all of those pieces actually add to the, to the reward value of the cake itself. So we form this memory. I think of it as set and forget. We set the value of something and then we forget about the details. And the way that uh, works is it gets perpetuated throughout our lives. And then we wonder why, why am I always going to cake when I'm stressed out? Well, <laughs> our brain says, you know, I, that's pretty rewarding. So that's the first part of the process is understanding this. The second part is saying, okay, well, what doesn't work? So, <laughs> you know, if we can think our way into changing a behavior, I would happily not have a job <laughs> because I know seriously. I could tell my patients I could tell my patients once quit smoking and they say thanks doc and they go home wow and I needed I that my, <laughs> yeah yeah exactly I could tell my patients to stop overeating and they would stop overeating that's not how it works we can't think our way into behavior change and we actually know why this is the case from a neuroscientific standpoint. So that new part of the brain, the neocortex, is the first part of the brain that goes offline when we get stressed out. So when we're stressed <laughs> or when we're anxious or when there's uncertainty, because that makes us anxious, our brain says, wow, this is really uncomfortable. Do something about it. Okay. And so we go to the cake or we go to the Netflix or whatever. So the thinking part of our brain is unreliable. It, it's the first part that goes offline. We can't trust our willpower. And there's actually quite a bit of research suggesting oh, that willpower, yes. yeah, you know this, you know this. Oh, yeah. So if this, if willpower doesn't work, what can we use? Well, you know, this learning process is the strongest uh, type of learning known. Can we actually hack into that? So this is what, what my lab's been studying for a couple of decades now, which is how can we actually change reward value? It's not by forcing change, but actually it's by tapping into it itself because our brain is going to naturally incline itself toward more rewarding behaviors. So for example, and one way to train people to do this is through mindfulness training, because that's about bringing awareness to the actual reward value of a behavior. So if we've stored a reward value when, say, starting when we were five, say around cake or whatever, we've carried it forward in, until, say, our 40s or 50s or whatever, that's a long time where we haven't really been paying attention. And when we start to bring awareness to that old behavior right now, we can start to ask ourselves, how rewarding is this? Not from an intellectual standpoint, from, but from an embodied standpoint. I'll give you an example from smoking. So we did some studies with mindfulness training uh, around smoking to help people pay attention to what it was like to smoke. We got five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment in a, public, in a paper we published back in 2011. So that was, that was pretty gangbusters. We were pretty surprised by that. And we started to look at the mechanism. And what my patients were saying was, wow, when I, when I smoke a cigarette, it tastes like crap. Yeah, <laughs> who knew? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But you know, I even had a patient who'd been smoking 40 years and we mapped out the number of times he'd reinforced his habit loop. It was around 293,000 times, right? And so I had him pay attention as he was smoking and he looks at the cigarette and he looks at me like <laughs> this big revelation, like, how did I not notice this before? <laughs> you know? Oh like, my God. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
So the the nice thing about this is this is this is how our brains work. They're all they're going to look for an, a, a bigger, better offer, which is you know one when we can see how unrewarding these old behaviors are, whether it's overeating or smoking or getting caught up in an, an anxiety and worry habit loop. We can see that that's not rewarding, which opens the door for something that is more rewarding, such as curiosity or kindness. And we've even done the clinical studies behind this. So we did, we have an app based mindfulness training called eat right now, where we got a 40% reduction in craving related eating. This was in a study led by Ashley Mason at UCSF. We just finished two studies with an app uh, called unwinding anxiety, which basically just teaches people 10 minutes a day, how to map out these habit loops and how to see how unrewarding getting caught up in worry is and how rewarding it is simply to be curious about those sensations. What was the name of, okay, let's go through both of those apps. The first one was eat right now. And then the second one was called what? Unwinding anxiety, you know, because we get all wound up. I like it. I like it. Okay. So unwinding anxiety. Okay. Excellent. And we just published a paper uh, a couple of weeks ago now on physician anxiety. So there was this time BC before coronavirus. I don't know if you can remember back that far. Oh, wait a minute. Uh, Let me just think for a second. Oh my God. Well, wait a minute now. Physicians don't become anxious. I mean, come on. Aren't we like godlike creatures or something? <laughs> yeah, we're supposed to be, you know, we're supposed yeah, to be know. those martyrs Whatever. who, you know, we shouldn't even go to the bathroom because we could be saving lives. <laughs> I know at that very moment. And what were you thinking about just your you selfish son of a gun. Yeah. <laughs> I know, I know. So we, we did a study looking at anxious physicians to see if we could help them kind of unwind their anxiety. We got a 57% reduction in clinically validated anxiety scores, uh, which was surprising to us, but nice to see. Wow. Uh, we even found a, a 50% reduction in certain aspects of burnout because there are certain personal or individual aspects of burnout, such as cynicism. Interestingly, we got a, still got a significant reduction, but not as, uh, as large of a magnitude in things like emotional exhaustion, because uh, exhaustion is often related to institutional factors like being overworked and being forced to use electronic medical records that are cumbersome and things like that. So we could even see how there's a dissociation between individual factors such as cynicism and more institutional factors such as exhaustion. So that was nice, but we wanted to make sure that was actually true. So we did another study. This was funded by the NIH uh, where we looked at people with generalized anxiety disorder. I don't know about you, but I think of these folks as the uh, the Olympians of worry. <laughs> you know, they are Honey, really if you're going to listen, I say as a woman, if you're going to worry – just kill yourself over it. Just do it. Do do the big worry. And the way I like to look at it is women as opposed to men, you know, because we're more likely to have generalized anxiety disorder, we don't just worry. We pre-worry. We worry about not worrying enough. And then we just stir it all up. And we take it to an Olympic level. I, I, I'm, I'm rather proud of this myself. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> That's fabulous. Well, if, if worry actually helped us think better, I would be more for it. <laughs> Unfortunately, it does precisely the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it makes our prefrontal cortex go offline, especially when we start to get into things like panic 
and panic disorder where we're you're doing wildly unthinking behavior. Right. So, you know, we did this study and we actually got a 63% reduction in these anxiety scores where the control group only got a uh, 15% reduction. So we saw this huge shift and difference between these groups with this unwinding anxiety app. So to me, replication is a hallmark of science. And here, you know, we had two studies now under our belt uh, where we're seeing big changes. But on top of that, we could actually look at the mechanism. And this is where, you know, we saw increases in mindfulness uh, that were mediating a reduction in worry. And that reduction in worry was mediating a reduction in anxiety, which is just a fancy term for, you know, we could see what pieces were affecting other pieces in a causal uh, chain. You know, the more people were becoming aware, the more they could let go of these worry habit loops because they weren't rewarding for them. And the more they let go of that worry, the less anxious they got. But on top of that, so that was interesting. But on top of that, my favorite part, uh-oh, here One it comes, da-da-da, drumroll, drumroll. Okay. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so I, I think of, uh, you know, mindfulness training can be confusing to some people or it can mean different things to different people. So I really think of it as bringing awareness to uh, what's happening right now, but in particular bringing an attitude of curiosity or interest. We're not prejudging what's happening or worrying about what's happening, <laughs> but we're simply bringing awareness and getting and starting to notice, oh, here's what's happening. Here's my reaction to it. Here are the thoughts. Here are the emotions. Here are the body sensations. So we can change our relationship to those things. So I think of curiosity as a superpower. And so we actually embed that training where people can become curious about their thoughts, about their emotions, about their body sensations, and that that becomes the bigger, better offer. Because, well, you tell me, uh, and this is not scripted, so be honest, what feels better, worrying or being curious about what worry feels like? God, what should I say? I, I gosh, I'm so lost. <laughs> Think about that one. <laughs> I know, totally. Well, you know, the <laughs> issue of curiosity is kind of interesting because when you're actually curious, it's it's that in and of itself is a brain hack because what you're actually doing is you're forcing yourself to stay in the moment. Okay, mm -hmm. because in order to be curious about something, you have to be looking at it. You have to be examining it. Yeah. You can't be rushing yeah. past it, which is what you do when you're in addiction mode. Um, you're just going for bling. There's no thinking going on. That prefrontal cortex is like, you know, what's that? Um, it's gone. Uh, and, and so you're basically just sort of lizard brain. You're running around um, just ping-ponging around with uh, emotion and sensations and reactions instead of, you know, sitting back and hitting the pause button. I love what you have, um, you know, when you brought up this um, in your article, when you said, you know, once we are aware of our unrewarding anxiety, see, now you're already going to this, you know, new rewarding place, that it's unrewarding, we can then deliberately bring in the bigger, better offer. Since our brains will choose more rewarding behaviors simply because they feel better. And again, the curiosity thing is very important here. I love when you call it a superpower because it's exactly what it is. Then you said we can practice replacing old habitual behaviors such as worry um, with those that are naturally more rewarding. Now, you brought up a really great kind of um, COVID-19 viral you know, example here. All right, so for example, if we notice that we have a habit of touching our face, 
we can be on the lookout for when we act that behavior out. For example, if we are starting to worry, oh no, I touched my face, maybe I'll get sick. And then instead of panicking, taking a deep breath, here's your curiosity and here's your hitting the pause button, becoming more mindful and ask, when was the last time I actually cleaned my hands? <gasps> Think. And then your answer is, oh, right. I just got through washing my hands. They're clean. Okay, so now all of a sudden, just by taking a moment to pause and ask the question, you give your prefrontal cortex a chance to come back online. Come on down. Come back online. We need you here. <laughs> and do what it does best. Think. I just, you know, that one section that you wrote was, I think, was perfection because it just said it all. So we have all these women out there, mostly women in my um, uh, listening, you know, community for the Her podcast, and they're all sitting around going, I'm so anxious and I'm, I'm filled with angst and worry and concern. What if, what if, what if? Um, how do I rein this in? How do, how do I just take better control of this so I don't feel so completely out of control and constantly seeking a way to anesthetize this? So how do they learn mindfulness? What do you do? Yeah, well, that these app-based mindfulness training programs are set up to give people short videos uh, and in-the-moment exercises on a daily basis, like 10 minutes a day. But basically, anybody can learn this by just tapping into their natural curiosity. You know, that's really the root of mindfulness is oh, what's happening. And I think of it as a three-step process. Can somebody first map out whatever habit loop they're stuck in? Is it a worry habit loop or, or whatever? The second step is just getting curious. How, how rewarding is this? And I ask this, have my patients use this simple question, which is, what am I getting from this? You know, if I'm overeating, what am I getting from this? Uh, and how does it actually feel in, in my body? We just did a study where we embedded this craving tool into our Eat Right Now app, where we had people um, pay attention as they were eating and then rate how rewarding it was basically by how content they felt after they finished eating. And if they were overeating, uh, and they could see that it didn't feel good, they would rate that it didn't feel as, as uh, content. We could actually mathematically model their, the reward value and watch it drop within 10 to 12 times of people using this craving tool simply from bringing awareness to that behavior. So, you know, it doesn't take, it doesn't take a, a whole lot of, you know, like a PhD in mindfulness <laughs> to learn how to be mindful. It's simply about bringing awareness to what's happening right now and seeing what we're getting from it, whether it's overeating, whether it's anxiety, whether it's smoking or, or whatever. Uh, so people can certainly, you know, do, you know, take, take an app-based training, something like that, but we can also apply these principles to our own lives. And I've actually, for anybody that's struggling with the uncertainty and anxiety right now, I've put out maybe 25 short YouTube videos uh, just around coronavirus anxiety that talk about all the different ways that we get caught up in these habit loops, whether it's checking the news 
or getting caught up in worry or feeling guilt and shame or whatever. So folks can check those out as well. And and so they could just go to YouTube and and just put Dr. Judson Brewer. That's B-R-E-W-E-R. Is that correct? It's actually Dr. Judd, D-R-J-U-D. I tried to make it as short as possible. I don't know. <laughs> so, d- well, d- well, why did your mother call you Judson then? I mean, I'm just trying to understand uh, this. <laughs> 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 it's like Pamela for me. The only time anyone ever calls me Pamela is, you know, was my mother when I was in trouble. Um, but otherwise, <laughs> it's Pam. So I kind of get where you're going here. So it's Dr. Judd Brewer. And, and this is where you can actually um, uh, view these marvelous YouTube videos, which will teach you what you need to do um, when you're really trying to activate mindfulness as a way of being able to deal with um, your anxiety, especially in the era of COVID. You know, Judd, I can't thank you enough. I mean, this has just been a fabulous, fabulous uh, discussion um, with an expert of your caliber who's really looked at this whole issue of brain hacks and breaking the uh, coronavirus anxiety cycle. Everyone out there, the name of the book is The Craving Mind, um, which is most um, important. And then um, the best way to be able to learn more about your work right off the bat is just going to YouTube, Dr. Judd Brewer. Do you have a website in particular that people could go to as well? I do. It's Dr. Judd, D-R-J-U-D, the shortest URL I could think of. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so Wait a minute. Have- you actually got that URL. That's pretty cool. So uh, <laughs> D, so that's doctor, like D-R-J-U-D dot com. Learn more. And again, the name of the book is The Craving Mind. And I can't thank you enough, Judd, for being on uh, the her podcast. I mean, this has just been fabulous. And needless to say, ridiculously timely because we need to be more mindful with the level of uncertainty all of us are beginning to, you know, really have issues with. Oh my gosh, it's so tough. So thank you again for being on the Herb Podcast. Thanks for having me. All right, now everyone run on over to iTunes right now and rate and review the show because I'm waiting to hear from you. Why? Because I'm Dr. Pam Peek, host of the Herb Podcast. Follow me on Facebook at Dr. Pam Peek or Twitter at Pam Peek MD. And remember to catch every single episode of the Herb Podcast on iTunes or Radio MD. Hey, thanks for listening today and please stay safe and stay well.